Hello, welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I am Carl Christensen. I'm back again with Matt and Cameron, and uh, we've got a special podcast planned for you today. I teased this in our last podcast that we had a potential guest coming on, and so we've got our, uh, our mutual uncle, um, Brent Christensen, uh, joining us for the uh, for the first time on our podcast. Welcome, Brent. Uh, thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. So a little bit of, uh, a bit. I guess I could do, it, doing your whole resume would probably take most of the podcast, so we'll just kind of do a, a few highlights here. Um, most recently, you were the director of the AID, or the American Institute of Taiwan. Um, in, your tenure in there Taiwan. was... In, in Taiwan. In Taiwan. Oh, American in Taiwan. I'm sorry. There we go. <laughs> um, and your tenure there, I believe you were there as the director for three years. Is that correct? Right. And then uh, now your history with Taiwan and our, the subject of the, today's podcast will be Taiwan. You've had a long and storied history in, in Taiwan. You've, uh, I believe, been uh, either lived there or visited there for some portion of the last, say, 40 years or more. <laughs> uh, that is correct. I was a missionary there in the late 70s. Uh, my first assignment in the Foreign Service was there. Uh, I went back as the, uh, I mean, I was the director of the Taiwan desk at the State Department, then went went back to Taiwan as the deputy director at AIT, and then uh, have most recently returned to Taiwan as the director. So, Great. Uh, and now that's uh, just to, for those that are not aware, that's the ranking American diplomat in, in Taiwan, right? That's the, uh, the representative of the United States government in Taiwan. Right. It's uh, known as a kind of chief of mission, uh, usually with an ambassador title, uh, right. because uh, we do not have an official relationship with Taiwan. Um, it's uh, it, right. the, uh, the title is director. OK, great. Um, a few other quick highlights about. So you've been in the, the, uh, the State Department, the Foreign Service now for uh, over 30 years. Um, and have served in lots of different locations, so Taiwan just being one of them. Um, but you are also um, a, I believe you you still have uh, you're a dentist. Um, is that correct, Brent? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, class of '84, Oregon uh, Health and Science University. So that's uh, an unlikely combination, I think. Uh, but I'm, I'm from the stories I remember, it's it served you a few times in your in your diplomatic service. Uh, true. True, true. I, I especially uh, well uh, when I was in Beijing in the early '90s, I was doing uh, uh, on a volunteer basis, uh, doing a lot of root canals for people, and uh, it was a good background for my um, um, for serving as the uh, Environment Science Technology and Health Officer in South Africa, and then as the ESTH uh, Counselor in Beijing. My last assignment in Beijing, last nice. of three. Okay, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting, uh, I guess, career opportunity that's uh, worked uh, worked for you. Um, now, so uh, today, like I said, we're going to be discussing Taiwan, which you have a, a wealth of uh, knowledge about. Um, I guess I would like to start um, a little bit talking just. Kind of once again, title of the podcast being "Learn It from a Layman." We try to take things from a pretty basic level and work up a little bit so that people are familiar with the, the subject. So Taiwan being an island right off the coast of uh, mainland China, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the climate, kind of what the weather is there? Uh, it's a more or less a subtropical uh, climate. It uh, straddles the um, uh, 
uh, Tropic of Cancer. Um, it's essentially at the same latitude as uh, I think like Florida. Uh, okay. and, uh, so very hot, muggy summers, uh, cool, rainy winters. No. Are there mountains on Taiwan that get snow at all? Or is there no place on Taiwan where you could find snow? Uh, they do have mountains in Taiwan. In fact, uh, Taiwan is, is unique in that it has uh, over 100 peaks uh, that exceed 10,000 feet. Uh, the, uh, I, have, I have climbed uh, one of them, uh, Mount Jade, the tallest, uh, which is about 13,000 feet. Um, Taiwan actually has the distinction of having the tallest mountains in East Asia. Uh, the other mountains in the, the mountains that are taller or as tall uh, are, I think, uh, in the Kamchatka Peninsula up in, the, in Russia, and then, of course, uh, in Tibet. Wow. Okay. That, uh, I I guess I should get this out of the way quickly. I do have uh, all these things you're going to be telling me to uh, telling us our, our whole podcast and our whole audience here tonight are are also news to me because well I had planned to visit you and and my parents who were also living there last year I wasn't uh, I, I did it didn't work out given a global pandemic um, so uh, I didn't get to experience uh, Taiwan like I had hoped but. Um, Okay, so very mountainous is what I'm understanding. So there is snow on some of these mountains? Oh, yes, I didn't answer your question today. Yes. No, In fact, okay. one, of the, uh, one of the mountains is called Snow Mountain. Oh. Um, they don't get a lot of snow, but there is, there is snow. <laughs> okay. All right. So you said it's uh, subtropical. Um, now we're, we're on the... Uh, the east coast of, of China. Do you get so we get hit by typhoons there as well? Uh, usually several typhoons uh, come through every summer. Uh, the typhoon season is approximately May through September. And uh, in point of fact, uh, if Taiwan doesn't get typhoons, uh, as, as last year, last year they, they didn't have any typhoons at all. And so they were suffering from a bit of a drought uh, because the typhoons bring in a lot of rain and it fills up the reservoirs. Mm, okay. What, now, is it also the case that uh, Taiwan is uh, experiences earthquakes frequently, uh, or what are the most frequent nat natural disasters that that I mean typhoons? How how serious are those, or and and are they frequent or any earthquakes to speak of? Uh, Taiwan is very seismically active. Uh, anyone who has lived in Taiwan for any length of time has felt a number of uh, of small earthquakes. Um, I mean, they're they're not too alarming, but uh, Taiwan has had a couple of, of rather large ones. Um, the most recent was in 2016 in in the south, uh, where uh, there were about a hundred people who died, more or less hundred plus, uh, and mostly from a building collapsing. Uh. And in 1999, uh, that was a, a more uh, severe earthquake disaster. Uh, where more than 2,000 people died, but also largely because of buildings collapsing. So um, this has uh, uh, inspired uh, the Taiwan uh, authorities to enforce more um, uh, or enforce earthquake proofing buildings a little more rigorously. But Taiwan has a lot of very old buildings, so you know uh, any large earthquake is likely to uh, cause some of them to collapse.
Okay. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit later about, yeah, just um, a little bit about the history of, of Taiwan, and, and you can talk a little bit about what, uh, how old some of these buildings might be. But um, before we get, move on to a different subject, Matt, any, or Cameron, any questions about climate? Also, uh, Matt um, was also not afforded the opportunity to visit uh, either uh, Brent or our parents in the in in Taiwan because of the pandemic, but uh, Cameron was able to sneak in a trip. So Cameron's got a little bit more firsthand knowledge of the uh, climate there or the experiences there. So any questions for Brent, Matt, or, or Cameron? Uh, not uh, specifically regarding climate. I think you covered it yeah. pretty well. Uh, okay. I, I enjoyed the rainstorms that did happen while I was there. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was nice. Thanks for rubbing it in. Um, all right, let's move on the, to another kind of uh, everyman appeal subject, uh, food. So people are very familiar with traditional uh, Chinese cuisine. Um, is Taiwanese food uh, in that mold or what's uh, are, what what unique differences are there between Taiwanese food and, and you know, your run of the mill uh, Chinese dishes? Um, a lot of Taiwanese food, um, you know, has, has involved seafood because they're on the coast. Um, it's not, um, I'd say, it doesn't have quite the variety of, of Chinese dishes that you might find on the mainland. Um, but uh, some of the specialties are like beef noodles, which are very good. Um, hot pot, if you're familiar with that. Um, yeah, I've heard that, that before. Yeah. Uh, they have um, a lot of uh, oh, the xiaolong bao. It's a uh, soup. Dumplings are are one of the specialties, and uh, other you know boiled or steamed dumplings are also very popular. Those are also you know some of my favorites. Uh, some of my not so favorites are, are the uh, uh, fermented bean curd uh, that is. <laughs> Is either okay. steamed or deep fried. You can smell this stuff from a block away. <laughs> um, it's it's, uh, it's an acquired taste, shall we say? I'm um, sure it is. <laughs> but a couple of a couple of other specialties worth mentioning are the shaved ice. Uh, it's kind of a dessert with fruit and um, a mango shaved ice is really really delicious. And they're also Taiwan is also famous for having invented um, this bubble tea. It's a, uh, it's basically uh -huh. usually milk tea with uh, tapioca balls in the bottom. Interesting. It, it's, said, it's become wildly popular all over the place. You can, you can get bubble tea in the United States and lots of places that have Asian populations. Oh, okay. They have a lot of uh, different fruits over there as well, as I have heard. They do. Uh, really delicious fruit. Uh, mango is, is, a, is a specialty, but it, Interestingly enough, the mango that is uh, most popular is, is a kind of a, a crossbred with a type of mango from Florida. Uh, they also have uh, great uh, guava and pineapple and watermelon, and, and they have some other fruits, star fruits and things like that that you don't find in the United States or elsewhere. Now, I've heard that there I, was... Uh, sorry, go ahead, Cameron. Oh. Uh, I was going to say, while we were there, um, they have several different types of bananas there. They have like a red banana that's kind of like a little mini red banana. It was pretty cool. And then there was these apples 
that were delicious. They were like and looked like an apple, but you ate it like a pear. It was probably one of my favorite fruits while we were there. So, uh, are, those, are you talking about the Asian pears that are really crispy? Yes. Yeah, yes. that that would be them. Those are, those are very popular. They also have a, uh, a so-called wax apple, dragon fruit. Anyway, it's quite a, I mean, really a, a delicious variety of, of fruits. And, and, the, and the tangerines are also really uh, outstanding. It's, um, it's really a, a great place to be for fresh fruit. Now, are there other, um, what are the other types of cuisine you'll find in Taiwan? I assume you'll find American restaurants there. They kind of are ubiquitous these days. Are there other cultures that that have imported their cuisine there into uh, into Taiwan? Uh, well, you can find quite a variety: Indian food, um, Southeast Asian food. Uh, but uh, I think the the one other cuisine, perhaps even more popular than uh, than Western cuisine, is Japanese. Uh, cuisine because okay. uh, uh, Japan and, and Taiwan have a very close relationship. Uh, Taiwan uh, was colonized by Japan from 1895 to 1945 when it was returned to uh, to China. Uh, the you know the Treaty of uh, Shimonoseki of 1895. Uh, there was a if you're not familiar with the Sino-Japanese War, that's when Taiwan was. Uh, was ceded to uh, to Japan for 50 years. That had a huge impact on you know, the culture, uh, on the cuisine. And so Japanese uh, food is very easy to find and it's quite good there. Okay. Once again, news to me, unfortunately. I probably would have known that if I had visited, but alas, alas. it wasn't to be. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we'll move on from food now. We'll move on uh, to to culture. So uh, I guess when I think of, of, once again, traditional kind of ch Chinese culture, I think of, of um, some a lot of importance placed on family and tradition. And uh, uh, is Taiwan have its own distinct kind of culture or is it some combination, I guess, then of potentially Japanese culture and chi Chinese culture? Or what does it look like? I would say it's primarily uh, the culture of Southeast uh, China which, uh, you know, from Guangdong and Fujian, uh, the Fujian province, which is right across the strait, the Taiwan Strait, is where most of the Chinese immigrants to, uh, uh, to Taiwan came from. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, the core of, of Taiwan culture is, is essentially Chinese culture. Um, and as you note, uh, it is very family oriented. And many of uh, Taiwan's companies are sort of family companies as a result. Uh, but Taiwan, I think, could, I mean, in many ways, has preserved the the cultural arts of China in a way that uh, uh, they have not been preserved in the mainland. Um, although some of them have have been revived there, but uh, it's more of a traditional setting uh, in terms of attitudes and and traditions. But Taiwan is also, despite you know its its kind of traditional uh, society, it, it can also be quite uh, innovative and and uh, entrepreneurial. And of course, the the Japanese influence is is has has also um, affected the culture as well. Um, I think that if you go to 
if you go to um, if you have spent any time in, in Japan and then come to Taiwan, uh, there are a lot of observable similarities. Is that holding true now with the younger generation? Uh, is it still the case that there's this strong sense of uh, of traditionalism, uh, or is that kind of is it becoming a more westernized society? Um, I think that young people are uh, definitely more, what you say, cosmopolitan, but they still have a very strong affinity for for Japan and for the West, and um, I think most of them actually have a, a distinct Taiwanese identity. Uh, they uh, most most uh, young people in Taiwan don't don't really regard themselves as as exclusively Chinese. Now, uh, as far as religion goes, are they, are they mostly Buddhists or are they religious uh, generally at all? Certainly, some of the rural areas are are, are still very deeply religious. Uh, Taiwan's religion cannot be characterized very easily as either Buddhist or Taoist. It's more of a traditional Chinese kind of mixture. And um, I would say most uh, young, younger people in, in Taiwan are not, not too religious, but they, uh, they still embrace their, their traditional religious roots I mean, in terms of attitudes and their, their, their core beliefs, I think, are still based on Buddhist and Taoist uh, principles. Okay. Matt or Cameron, any other questions kind of about the culture, uh, people there? I, I was just going to make a comment that while I was there, you could definitely see some Japanese influence in the architecture architecture that was there. Like, there's definitely some pagodas and t- that type of stuff that is there that is pretty visible. Yeah, I'd like to ask Brennan a little bit more about that here in a minute but yeah that's that's good to know um uh Matt just as far as um you know the religions of the area go I know um you mentioned that you spent some time there as a missionary um are there a number of western religions present in Taiwan are they popular gaining popularity losing popularity uh, just in general, what is Christianity in Taiwan like? Uh, it's quite visible. It's it's um, the Christian churches are very active there, and I think that uh, I mean our own the the church um, Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Mormon Church, has uh, has a pretty pretty big presence there. Uh, I mean, we've been there for 50 years or so proselytizing and but uh the catholics are 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 quite strong and uh other the presbyterian church has a particularly interesting background in taiwan the presbyterians actually led a lot of the uh uh, the taiwan kind of independence movements or uh were very active in the uh the move to taiwan's kind of democratization so in fact, uh, uh, Shelby Kim, who was the uh, representative for Taiwan in Washington D.C. at the uh, at their office there, uh, her father was a Presbyterian minister. Oh, okay. So, and then uh, you know, a follow-on question: Are there, uh, you know, is there a presence of uh, other religions, for example? Um, you know, is there an Islamic presence or 
other Asian religions, uh, Hinduism, any comment on, on that as well? Um, there are, there are some Muslims there. Um, a lot of the, um, servants who come into Taiwan from Southeast Asia are come from uh, Indonesia, which is a Muslim country. And, um, they have a mosque actually uh, a few blocks from where we lived uh, that uh, is pretty active so they do have they do have uh, a muslim presence i didn't see any um i mean i don't know what the hindu uh, population was like uh, in taiwan but there are other uh, obviously other uh, religions represented there that sounds kind of like a good segue into your immigration topic if you want to jump to that one uh, yeah, I mean, we, I, I, you've touched on a number of these other topics that we're going to start t- discussing now. But yeah, the immigration, I mean, already we talked about some religions imported um, and what where, you know, the uh, history has been as far as um, being colonized by either Japan and now, uh, you know, obviously the very natural Chinese influence. So what is the... Uh, current state of immigration where are people moving in from and where are uh you know current taiwanese people are they mostly staying put are they looking to move elsewhere what is the current immigrant immigration pattern i guess of ta- taiwan uh i would say the taiwan immigration story has been largely um one of out migration many many of uh i mean hundreds of thousands of uh, people from taiwan have moved to the united states you know i i think you probably are aware of many of the Taiwanese Americans who have, have have done exceptionally well in uh in the United States. Um Ong Lee, you may uh, recognize as a movie actor or movie director rather, um, has won uh best director twice. I think once for Brokeback Mountain and also The Life of Pi. But uh anyway, he's a he's a very successful actor from from Ping Dong or a director rather mm-hmm. uh, people like uh, Steve Chu or Ch- Steve Chun rather uh, one of the founders of YouTube Jerry Yang one of the founders of Yahoo uh, Nvidia uh, was uh, was founded by Huang Renshin uh, the you know the high-tech company and, yeah mm-hmm. uh, David He uh, a researcher who first came up with uh, uh, combination therapy for uh, HIV/AIDS. Anyway, uh, and then of course there are some sports figures like Jeremy Lin, uh, Wang Jianmin uh, was a pitcher for the uh, for the Yankees at one point. Uh, so anyway, continuing on with with migration, um, that that out migration has has slowed in recent years as Taiwan has become a, a more prosperous uh, uh, economy. And so there is some in-migration from Southeast Asia, from uh, the Philippines, Indonesia. Uh, There are um, hundreds of thousands of of spouses that have, um, I guess that's the the most permanent in-migration trend uh, where particularly um, men in the rural areas uh, have not been able to find, find uh, you know, Taiwan spouses uh, interested in in being uh, being on the farm. So they have uh, married a lot of uh, uh, Chinese women from the mainland, 
and also Filipinos, Vietnam, Vietnamese. Uh, uh, I think that's a, um, a popular source as well. But um, on overall, Taiwan has has not had an explicit policy to encourage uh, in migration, and I think they're they're looking at ways to uh, maybe do more of that as they as they try to uh, develop centers of excellence for business and finance and technology, uh, recognizing that they need to liberalize their their um, uh, immigration uh, regulations to allow those kinds of people to to resettle in uh, in Taiwan. They have they now have a, a gold card system uh, to encourage that. But it's still um, still kind of a work in progress. Dave, one of the reasons they really need my in migration is that they have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. Okay, that's what I was actually about to ask you was uh, whether or not the uh, the population. I know the population of Japan has aged significantly, and the um, is, is, so that trend is also the, uh, holding true for Taiwan. Then are there is the the population generally then shrinking on on the of people in the island, and if there's not a significant immigration. Um, do we have uh, issues with the uh, the economy? Uh, not yet. I mean, this this huge drop in the birth rate has been fairly recent, and so the population has continued to grow slowly. There are about twenty three and a half million people who live in Taiwan. It's expected to grow a a little bit more than that, and then start to shrink by about twenty thirty. Hmm. Okay, but they 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 also are facing a rapidly aging population so uh, they you know projections uh, are that perhaps uh, you know as much as a quarter of the population could be over 65 by like 2040 or so well um you mentioned uh, i guess along uh the line of, of i guess you said a lot of the people that have migrated out of the country have become very successful here in the united states or uh, you gave a number of examples there on uh, in Taiwan, this is moving more towards kind of the uh, the economy and exports of, of Taiwan. What uh, what are what are the big uh, economic engines of, of Taiwan? Uh, well, currently the real backbone of the Taiwan economy is the semiconductor industry. Um, it represents, um, I think, uh, it itself plus uh, associated industries is. Probably, you know, perhaps as much as 20% of, of the uh, of the economy, but um, you know, TSMC itself, I think the the largest uh, semiconductor company in Taiwan, uh, I think it's even, all by itself represents like four percent of the economy. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, TSMC and represents a significantly larger percentage of the world's microprocessors. Uh, aren't, aren't they the main fab for Intel and or AMD? I, I know most of the, uh, you know, the American companies that are build computer hardware design microprocessors or, or things like that, their foundries are in Taiwan. Uh, yes. They actually Taiwan is or TSMC is the largest, I guess they call it a, a pure play foundry in the world. So um, 
they they rep, they they produce um, well, I think they rep, they they produce over fifty percent of the uh, the most the most sophisticated uh, chips in the world. Yeah, it, it's it's some ridiculous amount uh, that the world depends on Taiwanese superconductors. I'm sorry, superconductor semiconductor uh, that industry to support our daily computing needs. Just uh, yes, well, that has uh, that has concerned um, some people uh, because uh, I, I think the, this really came to light um, earlier this year when the, the uh, automotive uh, sector discovered they didn't have enough uh, semiconductors, and as a consequence, uh, they couldn't um, they couldn't make enough cars. Uh, they couldn't meet demand for for vehicles, and um, this has been one of the factors that has uh, perversely uh, led to used cars being, um, you know, commanding 20, 30 uh, percent higher prices because you simply can't get new cars. Just because, uh, oh, that's, hmm. Well, I have a used car I need to get rid of, so <laughs> this is the day. Yeah, seize the day. That, that yes. is interesting, though, to think that the uh, the the Taiwan uh, the semiconductor uh, backbone is is uh, controls the, the the automotive market in the United States. <laughs> well, I mean, not not all by itself, but it's a uh, you know the semiconductor uh, I mean, as 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 cars more more and more features have been added to cars. It, it it's actually directly related to the COVID pandemic. Uh, because uh, there was a huge drop off in demand uh, early last year after the after the pandemic began, and you know if you look at the supply chain of the automotive industry, it's very long, and the car companies actually don't order the chips themselves. They have suppliers way down the food chain or the supply chain that uh, that order the chips, and they. They canceled all their orders because they didn't think they need them, needed them. And uh, then when they learned that, in fact, uh, demand for cars actually rebounded very strongly, they didn't have the ability that the, the, uh, the fabs were already fully booked with uh, making chips for the uh, consumer electronics uh, industry, which is also really taking off. Um, so it's it's been a... Um, you know, and, and it takes like six months from start to finish to get the to get the uh, the chips through this long supply chain to the automotive companies. So a lot of a lot of uh, um, companies are 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 making cars and trucks, and they just park them until they can get the the uh, they they make them to a certain point, and then they just park them until and uh, waiting for these components to show up so they can finish making them. Huh. It's, a, it's, a, it's a tough time to buy a car. Yes, for sure. This is very 21st century problems we're discussing right now as well. The uh, the computers that go in our cars are are holding up the development. So, <laughs> um, about the semiconductors and I guess just the chip making industry there in Taiwan as well. Is that? Uh, I guess I'm wondering about the history of it and, and whether or not there are natural resources there that kind of. Uh, are are used or what? Why was that? Uh, where did that develop from? Well, I think it. You know, one could one could uh, trace this back to 
the U.S. connection. I mean, a lot of these uh, founders of these companies studied in the United States established connections. Uh, at first, they were not making semiconductors, but over time, they um, they developed this uh, this expertise. And a lot of this, uh, uh, at least TSMC's success, can be traced to this um, this one gentleman named Morris Jom, who uh, uh, at the age of 53 was invited to go to Taiwan. He actually was not from Taiwan originally. He he, he immigrated to the United States from Shanghai uh, and worked uh, for Texas Instruments for a long time. And then he uh, was the head of their semiconductor uh, division and they Taiwan attracted him or, or invited him to come and set up a, a company in, in the United States, I mean, in, in Taiwan. And the, uh, his, his brilliance was that um, he decided that they would not design any semiconductors, they would just make the semiconductors for other companies. And that proved to be a hugely successful uh, model. And uh, TSMC is arguably the most successful um, maker of chips in the world. And then uh, TSMC has uh, already has a five nanometer plant. They're building a three nanometer plant and they have plans to build a two nanometer plant. Um, wow. wow. So they're just running away from everyone else. <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, TSMC was persuaded to establish a, uh, a $12 billion uh, fab in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area that will oh, be uh, producing uh, some of these sophisticated um, uh, chips uh, by 2024. So uh, this is a really important development for uh, for the United States. For Indeed, there's a kind of a national security issue to this. Uh, yeah. We, uh, we having, having that capability in the United States is, is really important for us. Yeah, it turns out we care about being able to produce microelectronics. <laughs> this is very uh, useful. So this is exactly why we had you on, Brent. So thank you for uh, this is uh, really useful information. Now, you mentioned before we move on to our next subject, because I'd like to transition kind of more towards uh, back towards, I guess, the language and, um, and some of the history. But I usually take a, just a second on our podcast, update our listeners I, uh, about uh, new areas that were kind of being onboarded into our podcast. And we had our first listeners from the pro a province of Nunavut in Canada. I was under the impression it was only caribou that lived there. So um, I just really courting those Nunavutians. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, yes, I'm uh, very grateful for the uh, local population in Nunavut. Um, I think I once pronounced it incorrectly on our on our podcast when I was saying it was an uninhabited province in Canada, so they, we weren't ever going to have listeners there, and now we do. So, uh, welcome to our Nunavutians. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll continue on with our Taiwanese podcast now. Uh, we're going to move on uh, and talk so, a little bit about the language. Please. Could I ask just one more question, um, kind of related to the economy in Taiwan? What is, uh, I, I guess, 
what what are average salaries like over there? Uh, what what is employment like? Uh, this actually has been a, a, a sore point um, for Taiwan in recent years. Um, the the large uh, high tech companies, particularly the semiconductor companies, uh, pay pretty well. Uh, but uh, many of the other, you know, engineers or people who are working in other industries um, have seen something of a stagnation of, of their of their you know wage rates, and um, it has persuaded some to go to China uh, or to you know uh, find work elsewhere in in the United States or perhaps uh, other places. But it is. It is a source of frustration for these younger younger people, um, so it is it is a concern. All right, well let's take a, a just a little kind of jaunt back to where we were discussing before a little bit about the culture. And I know one of the big parts of of I guess Chinese culture, and and uh, just given the long storied nature of it, is is the language. Um, Mandarin uh, Chinese is spoken in the mainland. It's also spoken in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan has a different, a slightly different dialect, from what I understand, and uh, and a different written form of the language. That uh, I guess that's kind of diverged here in the last uh, what uh, 50, 60 years, where the the, Taiwan, uh, the island of Taiwan is st stuck with the traditional characters, and the mainland China has gone with simplified characters. But do you mind uh, elaborating what the differences are, I guess, between uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, Chinese and, and mainland? Uh, well. The people that who were, um, you know, traditionally, people in Taiwan have spoken um, a Fujian dialect, uh, and um, it has it's it's quite different from Mandarin. Uh, but okay. when uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, and his government and, and army uh, retreated to Taiwan in 1949, they were uh, largely a Mandarin-speaking population, and they established Mandarin as the official official language and uh, so it has that has uh, become more or less the the uh, uh, the lingua franca of, of Taiwan although um, with democratization Taiwanese is now achieved uh, has also become an official language as well as uh, Hakka uh, so there, there are several dialects but the the, the language that most uh, you know of, of Business and commerce and academics uh, is is Mandarin. So uh, you talked about the uh, difference between the traditional characters and the simplified characters before the PRC came into being. Um, everyone used traditional characters. Uh, the PRC, I, I, I suppose, to encourage uh, or uh, literacy, uh, simplified a lot of the characters. Um, and uh, they um, they went through two or three stages of simplification. Um, the uh, uh, people in Taiwan, of course, for political reasons, if nothing else, rejected that that notion. But I think there's a, also a kind of a cultural explanation as well. The the simplification of the characters um, removes a lot of their you know, innate meaning because many of the characters are are ideograms. Uh, so you can't, um, you know, the the, the, uh, the simplified characters you can't you can't tell from looking at them 
what they mean. So, um, and frankly, they they lost they they they're not. I mean, just aesthetically, they they're less appealing. But um, but people in Taiwan can read simplified characters. In fact, many of the uh, these simplified characters were sort of in common use, uh, just as kind of shorthand. But um, now with the uh, with computerization, um, uh, traditional characters are, are no longer difficult to write. And um, so it's, uh, I, I don't anticipate that the people in Taiwan are ever going to uh, accept simplified characters as, as their preferred uh, uh, script. So you're saying that in Taiwan schools, do they teach both simplified and traditional? Are they, are they familiar no. then with both writing systems? No, just traditional. Just traditional. Okay, so if they pick up a a newspaper from the mainland, uh, are they able to read? Um, I think most most people, most most educated uh, people in Taiwan, can figure out what they are. I mean, a lot of these simplified characters are are you can kind of understand what they are from context. Okay, has this created other potential? I guess I see this kind of as an analogous to the United States sticking with the uh, you know, our, our, the, the measuring system that we use where the rest of the world has gone metric. You know, obviously the population of China dwarfs the population of Taiwan. Have there been problems that have come up because Taiwan stuck with the traditional writing system and the mainland's moved on? Um, are there economic issues? Are there um, issues going with uh, to, in education as far as applying to universities in the mainland or some, anything along those lines? Uh, not at all. Actually, I don't think this has. Uh, I, I don't. I don't see that the uh, adoption of simplified characters has uh, has been such a big advantage for the for the mainland, and it's certainly not been a disadvantage for Taiwan. Okay. One other thing you mentioned was there are a couple other languages. Uh, I don't know if you said dialects or languages that are spoken in Taiwan and said Hakka and I don't remember what the other one was. Uh, uh, well, it's uh, it's also known as Hokwa, or but it's it's okay. Taiwanese. It's Taiwanese. It's Fujian, okay. Minayu, Taiwanese. Uh, it's a uh, uh, it's it's a very, it's a very different language. So uh, that's not mutually intelligible with Mandarin then. No, I mean it's 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 a dialect, which means that, um, you know, like uh, when you say, uh, let's see, what's a what's a Taiwanese expression? Uh, you know, if you if you broke that down to characters, uh, it would you you could the the, uh, the Mandarin version is ni hui bu hui shuo guo yu, so. Um, there are there are connections, but they're not uh, they're not mutually understandable. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Cameron, the, or, um, the characters are, the characters are the same. Just right. the, the right. way they pronounce is different. That's the same with uh, with Hong Kong too, then, right? I mean, Hong Kong has um, a whole yeah. different uh, uh, it's uh, Cantonese, um, but it's the same same characters. Yeah, and again, uh, a Mandarin speaker would not be able to understand Cantonese. Matt or Cameron, any questions for, for Brent about language? Uh, not on that one, not for me. No, okay. no. That did, sounds you, pretty did, you good. did you understand any of the of the Chinese spoken in the, in Taiwan when you were there, Cameron? No, because I don't speak a single word of Chinese. <laughs> right. 
I, I'd imagine that the, uh, and that's what actually was going to be another question I asked, that um, you said China, you know, Taiwan, pretty well educated, mostly at least. Um, so are most people there, do they have any familiarity with English? What's the percentage of, of the population, I guess, that could uh, com- could carry on a conversation with in English? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say less than 10%, uh, maybe less oh, than 10%. It's not... Um, I think many of them uh, can read it. It's 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 taught in the schools, but uh, being able to speak it is another is another issue. Right. Um, is it mandatory in the schools? It is. It is. But they, uh, you know, President Tsai has actually uh, launched a a uh, bilingual society um, initiative, uh, which which seeks to have. You know, a, a large percent, percentage of the population, uh, at least functionally um, bilingual by 2030. Um, that's probably not too realistic, but it's uh, it's a goal to work toward. And uh, President Tsai recognizes that for Taiwan to become more of an international center for business, uh, they uh, they need to be able to speak English better. Uh, she also probably recognizes that uh, there's an opportunity with the uh, decline of Hong Kong as a as an international city. Uh, as you may recall, when during the British administration of uh, of Hong Kong, uh, you know, a pretty significant percentage of the population could speak English quite well. Uh, but uh, when uh, it was, uh, you know, after the handover. The first chief executive, C.H. Tong, decided to to make Mandarin the uh, the primary language of instruction in schools, and so the language uh, English language ability in in uh, Hong Kong has been in, in decline since then. Okay, does the education? So you're saying that your president? Sorry, what's the president's name in, in Taiwan right now? Tsai uh, Ing-wen. Okay, and she's aware that um, that obviously the education's kind of one of her priorities is what it sounds like. Uh, are there new universities being founded in Taiwan? I, I understand my, my dad, obviously, are, uh, was over there teaching at the University of Taiwan in Taipei. Is that? I don't remember the exact name of the university. There are a few universities there. National Taiwan University. National it's Taiwan Taiwan's, University. That's Taiwan's best university. Okay. Um, is that becoming a... a was that how long has that been kind of an expectation or is that an expectation that students go on to uh, higher education that they get college degrees uh it is it is um uh, historically uh taiwan has been a, a really important source of of uh of students for uh american um universities and uh taiwan has has produced a lot of uh, a lot of phds um uh, or a lot of a lot of them have, have gotten uh, advanced degrees from from the United States. Uh, you know, the foreign minister has a PhD in economics from uh, Ohio State. Uh, you know, Wellington Gu, the National Security uh, Council Secretary General, has a uh, a law degree from NYU. The president herself has a has a law degree from Cornell. So there has wow. been this long tradition. Um, but um, in the late 90s, 
uh, Taiwan converted a lot of their technical schools into colleges because everyone in Taiwan, their, their, their goal in life, their, you know, their obsession uh, is, was to get a college uh, education and the, there weren't enough college um, you know, openings or, or there weren't enough positions in the existing universities for all those who, who wanted to, uh, to have a college education. So they, they made more of them. Now, of course, uh, with a declining birth rate, they have too many universities and not enough technical schools. So um, it hasn't actually been a, it wasn't a particularly smart move. <laughs> and so some of these some of these universities are having to consolidate and and uh, and merge uh, in order to survive because they just don't, they simply don't have enough enough students. And this is uh, Taiwan is also trying to introduce more English language uh, curriculum in the universities so they can get more foreign students to go to Taiwan to study yeah, with with some some success. Wow. Okay. Uh, questions about that, Matt or Cameron? Anything about uh, education? No. So you you mentioned that it was a goal of I think you said everyone to go get a college education. Is that um, is is that just part of the cultural values then? Well, they recognize. Uh, I mean, this is a long-standing tradition in China that education is the uh, is the path to success. I mean, if you, if you go back to the uh, the old civil service exams, they had, you know, three levels, the uh, the local, the provincial, and then the national uh, exams. Uh, that's how that's, you had to pass these exams in order to become a success in in the uh, the Chinese bureaucracy, which is, you know, where people found success for their most, that's where it was considered the the standard of success. And this same tradition has uh, has prevailed. Um, I would say even even in Taiwanese Americans, uh, you know, they, they place a high emphasis on on education. Yeah, I, I mean, like you mentioned, the uh, number of of entrepreneurs or, or otherwise business, businessmen and women that have come from Taiwan has succeeded a lot. Uh, people have a lot of. Uh, uh, I'd imagine some. I mean, even the government there have a lot of ed education credentials. So. I'd imagine that's something that others see and want to emulate. Right, um, but it's, um, I mean, I, I'm not even sure they, they need role models. They just, it's its considered, you know, just it's kind of hardwired into their DNA at this point. Okay. All right, that's let's interesting. Hit, uh, Sorry, go ahead, Carl. <laughs> yeah, one or two more areas here, or two, so let's see, two or three more areas before we uh, wrap up here. Uh, we we touched a little bit on the history, but if we could get kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of, uh, I guess, when uh, Taiwan, um, you said, you know, it's been um, colonized by Japan in the past. And what's the history of the um, except thumbnail, the, uh, bird's eye view of, of uh, Taiwan history? Uh, what are some names we should know and, and some important dates in the history of Taiwan? Uh, well, OK, I'll try to give you the, uh, the short version. <laughs> um, I mean, Taiwan has been continuously inhabited for like the last 20 or 30,000 years. Uh, they had, uh, you know, kind of Stone Age peoples who, uh, who lived there uh, early on. And um, in addition to the Chinese people who, uh, who live in, uh, or the Han Chinese who, who live in Taiwan, 
there was a kind of an Austronesian uh, population uh, who were related to uh, the people of, of Polynesia and to some degree Malaysia. You know, they they're uh, they're not Han Chinese, and the, these people lived in Taiwan. Uh, there were a number of tribes that lived there before uh, the Chinese showed up in the 15 and 1600s. But Taiwan was um, was colonized by the uh, Dutch and the Spanish, the Dutch in the south, the Spanish in the north. There was a, um, a, a famous uh, Chinese or kind of Ming, Ming loyalist who, uh, who kicked out the Dutch in the 1600s. And, um, and so Taiwan was actually not officially incorporated into the, uh, the Chinese empire until like 1887. But uh, in 1895, because of this unfortunate war with Japan, Taiwan was, was, uh, was ceded to the Japanese. And during the 50 year period, the Japanese essentially incorporated Taiwan into, uh, into Japan. They, the language of, uh, of, of instruction was Japanese. Uh, they built universities and, and infrastructure. Anyway, in 1945, uh, the uh, Taiwan was, re was returned to, uh, to China and the Republic of China at the time, you know, the, in, as you may know, in, uh, the Republic of China came into being in 1912 after the, uh, the fall of the imperial system. And so the Republic of China was, uh, was our ally through, the, uh, through World War II. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek was the president. And Chiang Kai-shek, uh, in 1949, he, after, the, after the war, uh, you know, the civil war uh, erupted between uh, the nationalist forces led by Chiang Kai-shek and the communist forces led by Mao Zedong, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, essentially lost the civil war and retreated with his army and uh, his his uh, bureaucracy to Taiwan, about 2 million people. And they established a uh, the Republic of China in Taiwan. Um, and that, that um, the nationalist uh, party or the KMT ruled Taiwan until, uh, well, I mean, they, they established kind of a martial law uh, system there until 1987, uh, when the opposition party was allowed to uh, to exist, uh, the Democratic uh, Progressive Party, and then Li Donghui um, was elected in the first. Uh, he was a KMT candidate, but he was a he was actually Taiwanese. He was elected president in 1996, and um, then the DPP won the presidency in 2000, was President Chen Shui-bian. And then uh, the current president is, is a DPP, uh, was, a, was a DPP politician uh, named Tsai Ing-wen. It's important to, to remember that, you know, through the last 70 years since uh, Taiwan was, let's see, has it been 70 years? Anyway, since 1949, um, there have been two different, there's been a, a division between the, the native Taiwanese who have, who have lived in Taiwan for generations and whose, whose native dialect was Taiwanese and the mainlanders who uh, came in 1949. And uh, so 
uh, they call there's this there has been this tension between the Taiwanese and the mainlanders. It's 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 a little more blurred because of a lot of intermarriage between these two groups, but uh, it still exists. And most of the KMT, there are two main political parties in Taiwan: the KMT and the DPP. Most of the KMT members are mainlanders, and most of the DPP uh, are um, you know native Taiwanese. So are they the, the, are they rough, roughly the same in the size representation or? Uh, no, actually, the DPP is doing better these days. KMT is, is, uh, was defeated pretty soundly in the, uh, the 2020 presidential and legislative elections. Uh, I mean, the, the DPP um, has, let's see, reportedly, you know, maybe 20 some odd percent of the electorate and uh, uh, KMT maybe 10 and the rest of the population uh, are sort of independent, uh, but tend to uh, be supportive of one party or the other, sure. but more support the DPP than the KMT. Okay. I, so you just gave us a, a great history, historical sketch of Taiwan. Where does the uh, AIT, the American Institute in Taiwan, is that correct? <laughs> the, uh, where, where does that, uh, what's the history of that and what's, what's the role of, uh, of that, uh, of the AIT right now? Um, well, without getting too deeply into the U.S.-China relationship, um, in 1979, uh, the uh, United States uh, de-recognized the Republic of China, or Taiwan, and recognized the People's Republic of China as the, uh, um, the representative of, of China. So um, at that point, we um, had an unofficial relationship with Taiwan, but still uh, an important relationship, uh, politically, militarily, and uh, economically. So um, with the uh, establishment of the Taiwan Relations Act, the uh, uh, American Institute in Taiwan was created as uh, kind of a de facto embassy to manage the relationship. So you you take your day to day in the AIT is very much like you, you served a number of other embassies, including in Beijing. The the role in a, uh, the AIT then is very similar to what would be an embassy then. Yes, yes, and um, um, I think you'll agree that Taiwan has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. Yes. Yeah, and that is actually one of the. I had a question about so the the pandemic started uh, now. Quite a while ago, but uh, Taiwan's proximity to China had it uh, kind of in national headlines shortly after the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, at least, especially right at the beginning of the pandemic, though, and some would argue throughout the pandemic, Taiwan's done a remarkable job at maintaining, um, you know, a, a pretty good control on the uh, number of cases and, and uh, the health situation there. What were some of the uh, the things that you saw there in, in Taiwan that seemed to work, and what did the government try to do to help control the pandemic? Well, one of the things that Taiwan did that was uh, especially important is they acted early. Um, when they first became aware that uh, there was this this new strain of, of coronavirus in Wuhan, um, they, uh, I don't know, perhaps because of uh, their experience in 2003 with SARS, uh, where Taiwan suffered from uh, 
the PRC's uh, um, reluctance to share information, uh, they immediately started taking steps to uh, restrict travel from Wuhan and then, you know, more broadly from the rest of the mainland. So that was their first, the first thing they did that was, that was important. I, mean, it, I don't think the WHO declared uh, the uh, coronavirus or the COVID virus uh, as a really a, a, a health threat until like March. But um, so they also um, used some pretty in, impressive technology to uh, to track and trace people who were who were coming into Taiwan, um, and and they you know and they imposed uh, a quarantine a two week quarantine requirement early on to uh, ensure that people who came in even if they had no symptoms um, that they uh, they could uh, have them sit out two weeks to uh, to ensure that they uh, were not infected. So um, for over a year, Taiwan had no local transmissions at all, which is a really impressive feat. But in early May, because of uh, a I think it was a China Airlines pilot and some some uh, missteps uh, locally in the uh, you know around the the airport. Um, they had a, uh, an outbreak where uh, they were having, you know, hundreds of people infected every day. And so Taiwan really uh, took some stringent measures to, uh, to crack down. And finally, just yesterday, they had their first day when they had no local transmissions at all. So they, they, have, they have managed to contain it. At the same time, they have also been uh, trying to get everybody uh, vaccinated, but uh, Taiwan was a little hampered in its ability to uh, to get vaccines uh, until just recently. Uh, the United States contributed uh, 2.5 million doses of Moderna uh, vaccine. Uh, Taiwan has has gotten some other donations of the AstraZeneca vaccine from Japan, and they've purchased um, AstraZeneca vaccine and additional doses of Moderna vaccine. And then now uh, they, have, uh, they have their own vaccine that they have developed, the, the Medigen vaccine that, that has come online. So they're trying to you know, vaccinate people as quickly as they can. Um, but one of the other factors that, that made Taiwan successful is that the people of Taiwan trusted the health authorities and they, they were very compliant. They, uh, if they were, uh, told to stay indoors, they stayed indoors. If they were told to wear masks, they wore masks. So um, that has been uh, an important uh, element of their success as well. Would you imagine? There's, there's a lesson there somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> I was, I was, well, I was going to ask <laughs> whether or not you believe that that's the case, that it's just kind of in, uh, in their culture to kind of trust the uh, the health authorities, or if it's they've built up a credibility over you know the SARS pandemic and other r related issues that they've experienced there, because um, you know they're obviously uh, it's been a challenge for a lot of different uh, governments, but the U.S. certainly has struggled with it um, controlling the pandemic. And so, do you think it's something in the culture in Taiwan where they've been able to better um, handle those issues and, and follow health guidelines, or is it? Uh, I guess more uh, experience with it as a uh, as a society. I think they, 
I mean, I think they have more trust in the government than they they had in the past. I mean, Taiwan did not become a as a as a relatively short history as a democracy, but the uh, people of Taiwan, uh, you know, these these institutions of civil society have have developed over the last thirty years or so, and uh, so there is a you know and a, and a uh, the media they have a you know freedom of the press, so. I think there's a uh, understanding of what they needed to do, but it is, uh, you know, Carl, you've, you've uh, also identified sort of a, a cultural trend as well, that people, uh, even before the pandemic, if they had a cold, they would, they were more than likely to, uh, to wear a face mask, just as a, huh. just, just being a good citizen, right? Because as you know, uh, for the most part, wearing a face mask doesn't necessarily protect you, but it protects others from you. Right. Yeah. I think that's, uh, and that's something I noticed when I, my parents were there and early on, very early on in the pandemic, when we were in the United States being told we didn't need to wear a mask, I remember being on a, a, you know, a video chat with my parents and seeing uh, they had a uh, an instructor uh, that was teaching them Chinese uh, there and, and she was wearing a mask. And I remember thinking, oh, that's uh, that's interesting. And it, it was not in, not too many weeks later that I saw, uh, you know, these things coming in the United States and, and thought, uh, um, you know, the, we could probably take uh, some lessons from from Taiwan there. So um, uh, I, I would also point out that um, Taiwan uh, very generously uh, shared millions of face masks with the rest of the world. Uh, face masks and other other uh, protective uh, equipment with the rest of the world, uh, including more than 10 million uh, donated to the United States, not sold, but donated to the United States. Wow. Um, every state and every major municipality receives some. And if you look closely at uh, the uh, staffers at some of President Trump's uh, press conferences, you, will, you may notice that they are wearing masks that say, Made in Taiwan. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, Taiwan, yeah, it's, it sounds like from all we've learned tonight, Taiwan and the U.S. relationship is uh, it's very uh, uh, beneficial. The United States has benefited a lot from Taiwan and hopefully mutually beneficial for Taiwan as well. But um, one other thing before we let you uh, sign off, and uh, we thank you for your time, Brent, but one of the last topic. Well, um, some of our audience, and once again, learn it from a layman. Some people say this is a misnomer. We've had lots of guests on here that are um, in no definition layman, and you're certainly among them. But a lot of people that are listening are probably don't have a lot of uh, the, um, the historical or educational experience, but are, in, are listening to kind of find out more about Taiwan because they might be visiting it. So is there a particular thing that... Uh, you know, those that are looking to visit, so a time that they should visit, is there a, what, what do they need to do when they visit? Where do they need to go? Uh, well, I do think that Taiwan is an underappreciated tourist destination. Uh, it has, it's really a, a beautiful island. Um, it has uh, a lot of, a lot of natural beauty. And, uh, you know, as I said, we, uh, we did hike Mount Jade at one point. I'm not, I'm not sure I would necessarily rec uh, recommend that, uh, for everyone, it's a pretty tough climb. Sure, uh, but I think uh, it's a it's a really worthwhile place to visit. The people are extremely friendly. Uh, the food is good. 
uh, as I, we noted the you know wonderful fruits and and uh, some of these traditional Chinese delicacies uh, are really uh, are really delicious. Um, we we particularly enjoyed uh, the East Coast, uh, the Troco Gorge area, which was uh, pretty spectacular. Uh, actually, biked down the uh, East Coast uh, a couple of times. So. One thing that that is worth noting is that uh, when Chiang Kai-shek and his government uh, retreated to Taiwan, they brought along with them the uh, National Palace Museum collection, which consisted of uh, I don't know how many crates, like a thousand crates of uh, of, of cultural treasures from uh, from the imperial collection, and uh, that collection is on, or you know, some small percentage of it is on display at the National Palace Museum. So that's really uh, worthwhile to visit. In terms of uh, when to visit, uh, I would think the best time to visit is probably in the fall. Uh, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's not too rainy. And you can visit, usually you can visit uh, for up to 90 days with no visa. So. Um, is that true for other countries as well? Like if we have some listeners in Australia and the UK, um, are they able to visit uh, for without a visa? Uh, I think that's probably true for uh, Australia and the UK. Uh, I'm not sure that's true for a lot of the uh, countries of Southeast Asia, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Yeah, as I'll about to mention, we also have a number of listeners in India. So. Um, when you say fall, you mean September, October, November for our Australian listeners who have a different fall than we do. Um, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Matt or Cameron, final questions for Brent, either about visiting or anything else that we've covered. Uh, I, I thought that was a really good overview of Taiwan. Thank you. Uh, well, it's yeah, been that's, a pleasure to join you and, um, uh, yeah, you know, I was uh, interested in in talking about Taiwan. It's, uh, it's a great place to uh, to visit, a uh, great place to live, and uh, it was a great place to be the director of uh, or to be the chief of mission for the United States. Well, yeah, we really appreciate having you on, Brent. Uh, we're uh, we're yeah we're very we were very excited about this episode. So uh, those that are listening right now, tell your tell your friends. Um, share the episode and once again thank you Brent for for jumping on jumping on our podcast and we will talk to everyone later.